Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Anna Kogadakis, and each week we head down memory lane as I take you back in time as we remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. No need for a flux capacitor. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Now, when you think of Cooperstown, the first thing that comes to mind is baseball. Baseball arguably has the greatest Hall of Fame of any American sport. And today, we travel back in time to one of the most important days in its history, the grand opening of the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. We'll travel back with Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs and also the author of the book, The Cooperstown Casebook, Who's in the Hall of Fame, Who Should Be In, and Who Should Pack Their Plaques. I'll talk to him not only about the past, but also the future of the Hall of Fame. Monday, June 12, 1939. More than 15,000 people flooded the streets of the small town of Cooperstown in upstate New York for the first ever induction ceremony at the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Baseball's brightest stars were in attendance, and for many fans, it was the first time seeing these larger-than-life legends of the game. Here's sounds from the past from that first Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Cooperstown with baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to be present at the dedication of the National Baseball Museum and the Baseball Hall of Fame. Since for a hundred years this game has lived and thrived and spread all over our country, I should like to dedicate this museum America. Sound from the ceremony courtesy of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, the Hall of Fame had been established three years earlier in 1936 with the election of its first five members. 226 ballots were cast by members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. 170 votes were needed for election. The first class inducted were Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, Onus Wagner, and the Sultan of Swat, Babe Ruth. 25 electees from the first three induction classes were honored that day with bronze plaques. Drums and the sound of taps were played for the 14 deceased members. The 11 living members were introduced. And of course, the player that received the loudest cheers was the babe himself. I hope someday that uh, some of the young fellows who are coming into the game will know how it feels to be picked on the Hall of Fame. I know the old boys back in there who were just talking it over. Some have been here long before my time. They got on it and I worked hard, I got on it. 
And I hope that the coming generation, the young boys today, that they'll work hard and also be on it. The opening was a national event. All major league ballparks closed for the day, and the celebration was broadcast nationally over the radio. But there was one game played that day. Following the induction ceremony, the event continued with a four-block parade down to Doubleday Field, where 32 players, two from each of the 16 major league teams, played in a special all-star exhibition game. Onus Wagner and Eddie Collins picked teams. Wagner's team ended up winning 4-2. But the highlight of the game came in the bottom of the fifth inning, when 44-year-old Babe Ruth came into the game to pinch hit. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. The word Cooperstown is synonymous with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. But why Cooperstown? Why is the sacred space of baseball lore located in a small village of 2,500 people? For more on that and more on the museum, let's go back in time with Jay Jaffe. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. All right, we head now back in time with Jay Jaffe, the senior writer at Fangraphs, also the author of the Cooperstown Casebook, a really exciting book that goes back into the Hall of Fame, who gets in, who doesn't. And I love this, Jay, what you add in there, who should pack their plaques. It's a really creative <laughs> book and really creative concept. Thanks. Um, you know, the funny thing about it, and that the title, the title existed about 10 years before the book was actually realized uh, in full. And it was kind of a guiding principle, but... Um, what I, what I ended, I think, uh, uh, it's fair to say that I don't really advocate packing any of the plaques. I thought that you know, my, my duty, uh, in writing about every hall of famer or every, you know, every hall of famer from the major league baseball set, which you know, ex- exclude the executives, the managers, and unfortunately the Negro leagues players, um, you know, to, to limit the scope of the book, uh, was to understand why they were in there more so than, uh, uh, you know, uh, advocating that, uh, they should be kicked out. Okay, now before we actually get into some more of the history of Cooperstown and the the Hall of Fame Museum, let's kind of talk about your book a little bit more. I mean, I've always been intrigued by people who become authors. What was that process like putting together a book? It was it was a, a unique experience. I had been writing about the Hall of Fame since two thousand late two thousand one, and gaining an audience for it. Uh, I think really in particular since going on MLB Network in in, in late two thousand eleven, and had kind of come to be viewed uh, as as an authority in the, in the, in the field and I'd had an outline of a book uh, kind of built around 2011 to, or 2010 2011 that uh, basically just it wasn't the right time to do it when I embarked upon it I knew it was going to be a big project I also knew that I had a lot of material already written to draw upon at least uh, to sketch out the history but uh, it's really just an incredibly solitary exercise and it became more so for me because both the editor who signed me at Thomas Dunn Books and the agent uh, who got me the deal moved on. The editor went to become an agent. Uh, the agent went to become an editor. Another editor left uh, late in the project. So I was, I don't think I was ever more alone professionally than I was then. Um, and I really just had to rely on my instincts. And um, I had, fortunately, I had some in-house editorial help because my wife is an editor. Mm-hmm. Um, so she did first reads on about half of the chapters that uh, that I submitted. But uh, I'm pleased with the, with the way it came out. Uh, it's really about as, as much me as be, you know, in terms of uh, satisfying my, you know, my desires first rather than, uh, you know, what somebody else assigned me. 
So obviously by writing a book that's focused on baseball and Cooperstown, you spent a lot of time there. So now let's go back to June 12, 1939. 11 Living Hall of Famers came out to Cooperstown to celebrate the official opening of the Hall of Fame and Baseball Museum. But why was Cooperstown actually chosen to be the home of the museum? Well, uh, it's it's a funny story, but basically around the turn of the century, around, I think it was 1905, Albert Spaulding led a commission called the Mills Commission uh, that wanted to establish that baseball was a uniquely American game. This despite all evidence to the contrary, uh, that it had you know, evolved out of an English game called Rounders. Mm-hmm. Basically, they, they pulled a, a Civil War general named Abner Doubleday, more or less from central casting, um, <laughs> and uh, declared that uh, on the basis of a single old baseball that they had found and the word of one 71-year-old mining engineer named Abner Graves, who would have only been about five years old at the time, the commission Doubleday drew up the first field in 1839, and established the basic rules, and they, you know, they decided that all of that proved it, and it was basically the fix was in. It's kind of ridiculous, but you know, as we've learned more about uh, the history of Cooperstown, it's it's a good enough stand-in for the the pastoral beginnings of the game in the U.S. and the fact that it, you know, it it, uh, it was played in small towns all over the place, and and uh, Cooperstown is representative, and it's a it's a, it's a it's a town that's very well preserved in time, very quaint. It's uh, basically become built around baseball and and, and the Hall of Fame. And it works well enough to tell the story, I think. I mean, I grew up a baseball fan, and that's one of my main bucket list places that I have to go because I'm in the West Coast, so I don't really get to go out to to New York that often. But that's one of the places I am just dying to go to one day. And I, you know, like you're saying, it's just so nostalgic and it's it's kind of a step back in time. I mean, that's got to be just a fantastic experience for anybody who's a baseball fan, even maybe people who aren't as interested in baseball. Yeah, I think you know it's got something for everyone there, and I think. What's interesting is, you know, so much of what I do during the years focused on, you know, focused on the arguments over who gets in and, and, and who's who's the most qualified and things like that. But all the mementos and all the displays and, and uh, the photos and all that, it's just, you know, you can't help but but find something that, that really speaks to you. And, you know, we, I think we forget sometimes that uh, the hall is more than the dumb arguments about, uh, who, you know, who gets in and who, does, who should, you know, who, who gets snubbed and things like that. It's a great experience, and you know I've gone more in the past few years uh, in the service of re- researching and promoting the book than, than than ever before, and I you know I love it more each time. Uh, it, it feels almost like a second home to me. So, in comparison to other Hall of Fames, what is it that makes baseball so sacred? It's that I think people, fans of a certain age or fans of a certain bent, they carry that Hall of Fame in their heads, more or less. Everybody who knows anything about the Hall of Fame has some particular wrong they would write, a favorite player they think should be in, somebody who they think should not be in, some particular beef with with how things transpired. You know, this guy should not have taken this long to get in. And it's a it's a place that we kind of go to in our mind's eye when when we imagine baseball greatness. I don't think any of the other sports hall of fames resonates in, in, in that way. Um, you know, people don't think of uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame or the or the Basketball Hall of Fame in quite the same way as they do the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's it's you know it's something that everybody in the industry has an opinion on, and uh, everybody's got an argument that they want to make. 
I mean, it's funny thinking about the controversy behind, you know, the voting and of the players in the Hall of Fame. I mean, it happened right in the beginning. You had somebody like, you know, Ty Cobb ended up having more votes. I think he got, let's see, it was 222 votes compared to Babe Ruth, who had 215 of the 226 ballots. So right. from day one, you had controversy from the start. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that that kind of reflects there was a certain tension about around the game, about the, the, the way it was evolving and, and the impact that Babe Ruth had. I mean, he was, you know, he, he was um, his career was still freshly in mind when when uh, uh, when the hall opened, whereas Ty Cobb was maybe a little bit further removed because he'd, he'd come along a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. uh, about a decade earlier. But, uh, you know, up until uh, around the time Babe Ruth died in 1948, Cobb was generally viewed as the superior player just based on the, you know, the, the tastemakers of the game just sort of felt that he, he was the more skilled player. Now, ignoring the fact that Babe Ruth was an outstanding pitcher before becoming a, a revolutionary slugger. Right. Certain amount of controversy, and and I imagine uh, no small amount of egos involved in in those first vote totals uh, between those guys. Now, in your book, The Cooperstown Casebook, you also mentioned a scoring system or ranking system that you develop to ensure players' achievements are recognized. So it's the Jaws system. So how does that system actually work? Okay. Well, Jaws is short for Jaffe Wins Above Replacement Score. And uh, wins above replacement or war is an all-encompassing metric that that attempts to estimate the value of a player uh, using his offense, his defense, and his base running or his pitching value. The idea is that baseball has been played under such variable conditions over the course of uh, nearly 150 years that, you know, if you're comparing raw statistics, it's, it's very tough to, to, to put everybody on a level playing field. What this does is it measures them relative to a baseline. You know, how good were they relative to what's called the replacement player, which is basically, you know, a, a freely available substitute because who's slightly below average because finding average ball players is actually a, a tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. So what uh, what I do is I measure these players on both a career axis and, the, and what I call a peak axis, um, which is his best seven seasons. And I average the two because some players, you know, are, have different shapes of their careers. They stuck, you know, a guy who stuck around for 24 years uh, might, but maybe didn't have quite the same high points as a guy who had 15 years, but was, was involved in more championships there. Like I'm thinking of a guy like Sandy Kovacs, whose career was only 10 years, actually. Right. Or guys like Joe DiMaggio, who had short careers, but high peaks, lost some years to the, to the war. What I found was that weighting those two equally gave us some different answers than just basing it on career totals, because some guys didn't add a whole lot of value by sticking around late in their careers to collect milestones like 3,000 hits or something like that. It produces some, you know, I think for the most part, you get a lot of answers that you would expect. Guys like Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth are, are right at the top of the rankings. Uh, Walter Johnson and Cy Young, top of the pitching rankings, uh, at least among the old timers. But, you know, it, it does... Um, I think also highlights some some players who were who have been overlooked. Uh, there's a, a sabermetrician who works uh, for Major League Baseball now, Tom Tango, and I think he said something like something to the effect of a good metric, you know, will surprise you maybe about 20% of the time. And uh, that's I, that's kind of how I feel about Jaws. Is most of the time it gives you an answer you'll expect, but once in a while it's like, wow, I never I, I didn't realize this guy was so good. And what I've tried to do with my project here, this ongoing annual project, is to highlight some of these overlooked players, you know, who are not necessarily getting robust support uh, from among the uh, the voting populations, and and to help promote their causes. I'm thinking of guys like Tim Raines and Edgar Martinez and Larry Walker before that, Ron Santo. Mm-hmm. 
complicated, but those are some of the success stories, guys who've been elected after being highlighted by JAWS. And I'm lucky that I've built up a platform that actual voters pay attention to what I do. And as of uh, this December, I will be a voter myself. Congratulations. Uh, for the first time. Thanks. That's great. It's not, it's, yeah, it's cool. It's not something that I ever thought I would stick around long enough to do. But, uh, um, and, you know, it's not something, it's it's symbolic, you know, in terms of the hard work that I put in. I was, you know, I was writing about the Hall of Fame for 10 years before I even got into uh, the Baseball Writers Association to start building the service time necessary to get this ballot. Well, that's great. I mean, that's amazing, though. It's neat. I've already had, uh, you know, the impact of, of what I've done yeah, you know, not to not to blow my own horn, but but it's it's, it's deserved. You know, it's okay. Actual actual voters have already been have been taking note of my stuff for years, and you know I think that and say that it's helped you know support a lot of candidacies that might have been overlooked, and and uh, such as the one the ones that I named, uh, especially recently. I think that will have far more impact than my vote will, but it's cool to have that privilege just the same. Well, I mean, right now you can see baseball references added jaw scores on player pages. Right. You know, you mentioned how you've had voters who've actually talked about using jaws. I mean, I don't want you to specifically name names, but have you noticed more and more people looking at that statistic? Yeah. You know, it's over time. I would I would say I would never ask somebody to just go go entirely by jaws because it's not just, you know, it's a starting point for an argument, not necessarily the, the end point. But I think it, it acts as a good cut mechanism. And I think what what I find to be maybe the best use of it is ballot space is limited. Each voter can vote for 10 people. Mm-hmm. And what will often happen, um, especially in these days that we've seen some ultra crowded ballots, is somebody will say, I'm committed to these guys. These seven guys I know I want. I've got five guys I'm considering for three spots. Let's look at what Jaws says and, and uh, let's read what, what Jay wrote. And uh, uh, maybe he can convince me on which of these guys, you know, I should throw my support behind. And there are a lot of people who, you know, who cite that. And, and I'm proud of that. Uh, there are, you know, there are people who will, you know, will call me and ask me for my opinion uh, of what I would like to call the one on the one on one consultations or whatever, <laughs> which are all confidential. But uh, I will make time for any voter who you know, who wants to have a conversation about uh, about a particular candidate or, or set of candidates. Uh, I, I guess it comes it comes with the role that I've that, that I've uh, carved for myself. Well, I think it's a great role that you've carved out for yourself. And it obviously your talent and everything that you've done have led you to this. Now, when you look back at some of the players you talked about, some guys that have actually you know been kind of surprising. Were there players when you look back that maybe, you know, the years have gone past, they're no longer eligible that you said, oh, I wish they could have gotten into the Hall of Fame. They had deserved to be in. Yeah, and there's a secondary process for that uh, called the, the it's now called the ERA committees. It mm-hmm. used to be called the Veterans Committees, and you know what those committees were one of the things that I railed against initially when the, uh, when I was learning about the Hall of Fame because they made I think some some dubious choices. But you know I've tried with my system to highlight overlooked guys who get on those committees, and and again we've seen some success stories there. One of the things that happens in the voting. Is if a player receives less than five percent of the vote from the writers, he falls off the ballot and doesn't get another chance, uh, and then has to wait, you know, till till his eligibility would have run out to even have a chance on the committee. Mm-hmm. And most people, you know, because they didn't get that support the first time around, they're often overlooked the second time around. Well, in December, a uh, catcher named Ted Simmons uh, became the first "quote unquote" one and done player to be elected by the era committees uh, after uh, falling off the writer's ballot for the first time. 
he was somebody who I wrote about at length in my book. Uh, he's somebody who directly said, you know, I I was a goner. Uh, the analytics community that that uh, uh, that kind of resuscitated my candidacy, and I'm grateful for that. So that's that's one right there. Uh, Alan Trammell, who got in a few years ago, is another one. Lou Whitaker, who was uh, Trammell's longtime teammate in Detroit, was a one and done guy who got on the ballot for the first time uh, this past December, which was gratifying because you know he had been overlooked too. Ted Simmons had at least gotten onto the ballots. It's a challenge to get these guys past the gatekeepers that even make up the ballots because they, you know, one of the first things they look for is is how much support they got the first, you know, in their first uh, stage of eligibility. So there are a lot of guys. I think Dick Allen and Minnie Minoso are two that I'm hopeful this winter uh, might be elected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been fighting for, for their candidacies for a while. So yeah, there's there's a bunch of guys that you know that that I have uh, identified and and I'm hopeful uh, get their recognition in time, especially in the case of a guy like Dick Allen while they're alive, because I, I think it means a little bit less uh, if a player is recognized posthumously. If he doesn't get to enjoy it, that's 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 a bit of a bummer. And I wrote about that in the book with regards to the case of Ron Santo, who was elected uh, a year after uh, after he passed away, which was quite a bummer. Yeah. Well, I will say, though, score one for analytics and saber metrics for all that you've done there. Now, going back, though, to a little something more controversial, Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, they only have a couple more years of eligibility. Do you think they'll get in by that 2022 mark? And if they do, will it change the Hall of Fame? I think right now, two years ago, I would have said, yes, I think they're going to get in. I'm Right now, I'm more convinced that there might be a large enough block to essentially filibuster uh, and uh, prevent them from getting the 75% they needed, and uh, which which I find disappointing, but I also understand, you know, that that uh, PED use, steroids, all that stuff is still a very hot button topic. Right. You know, a lot of people have very strong feelings about it, especially people who I think feel like they were lied to directly. I was not in clubhouses during uh, the careers of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens by the time. Uh, you know, it, getting a chance to interview players uh, came after that. So uh, I feel a bit differently about it. And I also feel there's a distinction between players who were using or alleged to have used during the time before testing versus uh, after testing and suspensions were put in place. So if a guy, you know, like Manny Ramirez flunked a test or two, to me, that's different from, you know, all the allegations you know, regarding Barry Bonds or regarding Clemens. Um, and I regard, you know, and, and and so I think I I treat them differently when I analyze them. But you know, other people feel that uh, that's you know that, that that it's all the same to them, and uh, you know they've got their vote, and I guess now I'll have mine. So we'll see. But I think right now it's a probably more likely than not that they don't get in the other writers, and uh, boy, who knows what's going to happen after that. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see how that's all going to shake out in a couple years. You know, I grew up a baseball fan. Baseball has always been referred to as America's pastime. Sadly, though, many say that the sport has lost its luster and appeal over the years, especially with the younger generation. So how can baseball in the Hall of Fame change that and bring the sport back to its former glory? That's a good question. Well, you know, right now, I think we're really in a, in a very precarious time when we're, you know, Baseball can't even find, seem to find its way to uh, an agreement to start the 2020 season in the midst of this pandemic. I think the sport has a very hard time marketing its stars, and baseball really does have its history going for it uh, in a way that I think other sports aren't quite the same. But 
you know, you're t- when you're talking about the, that history, you're ta- you're, a lot of it is appealing to an older demographic, and baseball really does need to be drawing a, young, a younger demographic. So I think educating younger fans on, on just how good these players were and what they meant to the game, I think it's important. But I also think that it maybe should not be the focus, you know, if, you, if you're talking about drawing new fans to the game. Certainly there will be a time when Mike Trout – who I think has already done enough to, to be elected, yep. starts getting to milestones that, that place him in the pantheon of, of, of the greats. And it'll be a chance to talk about Willie Mays and, and you know some of the other uh, superstars of, of the past. But I think it's, you know, you don't hear the Mike Trouts and the Francisco Lindors and the, and the young players today talking about baseball history as much because they're so focused on today. And so it's, it, it's a challenge to connect that, uh, that present to the past. That is a very interesting answer, and that's a really interesting concept to really try to focus on bringing in the past. You're right, because you think of some of the most memorable times in baseball, and it's usually somebody who's chasing a record, and you bring back the past, and you're reliving it. Even if you weren't alive for that, you remember it. You know, So there are some great yeah. moments that really stick to you. And I always remember, you know, as controversial as Sammy Sosa was, I actually just talked about last week in my show, I had the Sammy Sosa cork back game, but that yeah. race between him and Mark McGuire was something that was one of the most exciting times as a sports fan for me personally to watch. Yeah, I was just I was just going to mention that. And uh, it's interesting you, you bring that up. I'm actually going to be on that uh, that ESPN 30 for 30 that, uh, that that's airing, I think, June 14th. I was I was interviewed for that, and uh, I just found out yesterday that I made the final cut. The fun of that at the time, before we knew what we knew about about performance enhancing drugs, was especially was that Mark McGuire was a was a guy. He was a baseball fan who understood the historical significance of what he was doing. And every time he'd get to you know fifty or fifty two or fifty four or whatever, you know it would be like okay, he matched Willie Mays's highest total or. He just tied Hat Wilson for the most home runs in a National League season. Or, you know, here he is tied with Babe Ruth. Here he is tied with Roger Maris. And here now he has the record. And that was like, that was something that was really cool. And he he had a certain reverence about players that he was chasing. And I think, you know, when we look back at, at the way that uh, history has treated those guys and the way the industry has treated those guys, I think there's been something lost there. And it's not just, it's not all, it should not all be on McGuire's shoulders mm-hmm. or Sosa's shoulders. I think that uh, the game has done them something of a disservice by trying to sweep all their accomplishments under the rug. I'm with you completely on that. And you can find out more again, June 14th, the 30 for 30 on ESPN. I'm going to be watching that. I'm sure many of the listeners here will be watching that as well. But Jay, before we go, when you go to Cooperstown, what's your favorite exhibit or something that really sticks out to you there? You know, I, I love that new baseball card exhibit. I'll be going back to that. Uh, I love the, um, the the 70s exhibit called the whole different ball game or, or sorry, a whole new ball game. Uh, those are two of my favorites. But uh, if I'm really lucky, Getting just a few minutes in the Platt Gallery by myself is one of the coolest things uh, about going to the Hall of Fame. If you go up there in the winter, um, sometimes you're, you you know you might be the only person in the in, in that part of the museum, and it's 
you know, it, it's really an experience that I would wish for any baseball fan. Wonderful. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I'm going to go right out to that exhibit as soon as I get there and check out that 70s exhibit, the baseball card exhibit, all of it, just because you said so. And again, Jay Jaffe, senior writer for Fangraphs, also the author of the Cooperstown Casebook, who's in the Hall of Fame, who should be in, and who should pack their plaques, and where can people get the book? Uh, you can get it at, uh, you know, at any of your major online retailers, although I would encourage you to check out uh, your local independent re- retailer or go through, I think it's the IndieBound service. Um, and if you want a signed copy of the book, uh, Greenlight Books in Brooklyn will arrange uh, to have me come and sign a book. Hopefully we're going to work this out now in, in mid-pandemic. I've got some book plates that I can send as well. Uh, if somebody buys the book and, and just wants to reach out to me, I can I can arrange that. But, Fantastic. Um, it's all over the place. I actually have it on order right now because I was I was really excited to read it. So thank you, Jay, very much for joining right. me today. And congratulations also on uh, being an, a voter for the next Hall of Fame vote. All right. Hey, thanks so much. A big thank you again to Jay. And I found the story of how the baseball museum found its home in Cooperstown completely fitting to the sport. Everyone back then thought they were celebrating the centennial birthday of baseball in the town where it was created. But it was all a myth. A larger-than-life story that would eventually bring the first classes of baseball immortals to their forever home. A place where heroes get remembered and legends never die. Now, I know there have been debates whether or not the museum should be moved to a place like New York City to get more exposure and get more people out there. But I think there's something special in having it in a place like Cooperstown, in a small village. It's like any town USA, where any kid can dream of being a ball player one day. It's a pilgrimage for baseball fans, and it's a place that takes you back in time, just like we do every week. So now, I'd like to hear from you. Is Cooperstown the best place for the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum? And if you've been there, what's your favorite part? Let me know by reaching out on Twitter at Anna Kagarakis, that's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S, or by using the hashtag SportsTimeMachine. Some other interesting events happened on June 12th. In 1931, just eight years before, Al Capone was indicted for 5,000 counts of prohibition and perjury. Talk about a Hall of Shame record no one would ever beat. As for pop culture in 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones films, premiered in the theaters. Now, it's hard to picture anyone else other than Harrison Ford as Indy, but there were other actors considered for the role, including Nick Nolte, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, Tom Selleck, Chevy Chase, Tim Matheson, Jeff Bridges, Peter Coyote, and Jack Nicholson. Of all of them, I'd probably say Tom Selleck would have been the next best choice, but in the end, no one else fits that role better than Harrison Ford. Well, I hope you learned a little something new today. Thank you again for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're available in all your favorite directories like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagarikis and on Instagram at Anna Kags. And if you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagarikis, and we'll talk soon.
Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.